blues songs. Here we go. The blues are the happiness. I'm going to talk about some of the world's happiest people and the lessons they give us about being happier. But I thought I'd start out with you and maybe telling you something about yourself which maybe you didn't know. So I'm going to ask you two binary questions. One is about the quantity of life and the other one is about the quality of life. I want you to raise your hand uh, to one of the questions. The first question I'm going to ask you uh, is a question that, uh, if you think life is long or short. Okay, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand. You can only raise your hand to one of them. Raise your hand if you think life is short. Now raise your hand if you think life is long. Okay. <laughs> it's maybe a short conference. <laughs> All right, now, uh, this is about quality of life. Raise your hand if you think life is hard. Think life is hard. Now raise your hand if you think life is easy. All right. <laughs> So a guy named Michael Norton, a Harvard researcher, led a uh, team of researchers from uh, a few universities from around the world, and they surveyed 2,500 people, and they asked those exact same questions, and they correlated with happiness. And sadly, they found that the people, well, before I do that, I before I tell you the results, I'd like the people who think that life is long and easy to stand up. Anybody raise their hand and go, long and easy. All right, stay standing. <laughs> Don't worry, you're going to like the outcome. So the least happy people, and actually the majority of respondents, were people who thought that life is short and hard. And in the middle were the people who thought life was short and easy and long uh, and hard. But the happiest people, the people who were 20% happier, as represented by this young lady right here, were the people, and this lady here, why don't you two stand up just one more time? Just one more time, hold it. <laughs> These are the happiest people in the room. And by the way, they're more likely to vote and they're more likely to be generous. So these are the two women you want to invite to your next fundraiser. <laughs> I'll be hitting you up for money afterwards. I'm just kidding. So for the last 13 years, I've had the honor of working with National Geographic and have developed somewhat of an expertise in finding the most extraordinary populations in the world and then learning their secrets. And part of that is doing careful measurement ahead of time. For the, this first project, we actually spent two years to identify uh, five parts of the world where people live statistically longest. Then we recruited a team of experts who could help us uh, go to each of these places and distill out their lessons or the common denominator. So in a sense, we reverse engineered longevity. Uh, I wrote this cover story in, in 2005 and found that no matter where you go and find extraordinarily long-lived people, whether it's Europe, Asia, the United States, or Latin America, you see the same nine common denominators. Number one, they don't really exercise in the way we think of exercise, but rather they live in environments that nudge them to move every 20 minutes or so. For the most part, they live in walkable communities. They suffer the same stresses that we suffer, except they have sacred daily rituals that help them unwind that stress and get rid of some of the chronic inflammation that is the core of every age-related disease. They have vocabulary for purpose, which is worth about seven years of life expectancy. Good news based on what I've observed at the conference, they do drink a couple glasses a day, most often with meals. 
And uh, no, you cannot save up all week long and have 14 on the weekend. Uh, we did a meta-analysis of diets and longevity all over the world and found that 95% of the dietary intake of the longest of people are low-processed plants. Grains, greens, nuts, and beans. Beans are the cornerstone of every longevity diet in the world. If you're eating about a cup of beans a day, it's probably worth three or four years of life expectancy. Their, their houses are set up so it's easier to eat the right food and they have strategies to keep from overeating, like saying a prayer before meals or taking electronics out of the kitchen. And the foundation of every uh, longevity culture in the world is how they connect. They tend to put a priority on family over work and hobbies. They tend to be religious. People who are religious and show up at least four times a month live four to 14 years longer than people who aren't. And they curate their tribe. We now know that if your three best friends are obese and unhealthy, there's a 150% better chance you'll be overweight. So how you select people to surround yourself with probably has the biggest lasting impact on how you're gonna live. The biggest finding when it comes to longevity, and I think this is the disruptive part, in America, we tend to pursue health. But where people actually live the longest, they have no idea how they live so long. You find these 100-year-olds who are water skiing or standing on their head, and you ask them how they got to live so long, and they really have no idea. The truth of the matter is, longevity happens to people. These guys or women never say at age 50, well, go darn it, I'm gonna get on that longevity diet and live another 50 years. They don't buy treadmasters or accelerometers or sign up for the wellness program at work. The bottom line is they live in environments that make the easy, healthy, the, the healthy choice, the easy choice, or the unavoidable choice. No matter where you go and you see long-lived people, you see these, these same five factors that are ingrained in their environment uh, that make this easy choice, um, the healthy choice, the easy choice. So now what about happiness? 15 months ago, uh, Susan assigned me the story to do the same thing with happiness. And to start off, you have to be able to measure happiness. With longevity, it's pretty easy. You can find a guy who tells you he's 100, you can check his birth certificate, and it's really just a mathematical exercise to confirm that he's indeed 100, and this is what demographers do to populations, confirm ages. But how do you do this with happiness? You can see somebody who's smiling today, but they may be glum for the next six days, or they may be depressed, or they may, you may just be catching them right after happy hour. How do you measure happiness? And how do you measure for the whole world? Well, it turns out there are two statistical tools we can use to do exactly this. The first tool is something called the representative sample. So representative sample says that if you can find, if you can analyze just 1,500 individuals out of a big sample, you can extrapolate to that whole sample. And I'll give you an example. Imagine a swimming pool with 100 million marbles. Some of those marbles are black, some of those marbles are white. And you're given the job to tell me what, how many of each marbles are in the pool. Well, if you close your eyes and randomly select just 1,500 marbles and count those marbles and find that 39% are black, 61% are white, you can be pretty sure that in this whole swimming pool, there are 39 million white marbles, black marbles and 61 million white marbles. So that's the first tool.
tool. The second tool is called the regression analysis. So psychologists over the years, and these psychologists have won Nobel Prize, have divide, Nobel Prizes, have developed questions that measure different kinds of happiness. How you evaluate your life, how you experience your life, and purpose and meaning. Those are the three main ways that we uh, assess our lives and we can actually measure it. And then they ask a number of demographic questions about age, ethnicity, gender, income, 75 other questions. And then doing this regression analysis is just basically math. You can establish the correlations. I am going to tell you what sorts of things you can do to make it more likely that you will be happy for the long run. And to do that, I want to profile three of my favorite countries. The first country not too far from here, Singapore. A country of five million people, the tip of Malaysia. Extraordinary place, it has one of the highest GDPs in the world, one of the lowest rates of corruption, one of the highest life expectancies. It has the highest life satisfaction in all of Asia. No, not the islands of Tahiti or Fiji. No, not Bhutan. Bhutan is actually about number 91. It's not as happy a place as we think. Uh, but this little island nation that's very clean, uh, even though the island is 70 miles long or 70 kilometers long and 20 kilometers wide, it has 256 shopping malls. It's a shopper's paradise. So the chief architect of this uh, uh, social experiment, Singapore is only about 50 years old, is Lee Kuan Yew. This fellow very sadly passed away, but he is a Cambridge educated lawyer who speaks the Queen's English, but supremely understands Confucian values, the values dominant in Asia. Uh, he understands the notion and the importance of respect, harmony, hard work, uh, respect for elders. And he went about shaping a community that made it easy to live out those values. Very important. Not always easy. He inherited a country, or he took power of a country, that was very ethnically diverse. About 70% were Chinese, ethnic Chinese, Han. Uh, about 13% were Indian, and about 12%, 14% rather, were, were um, uh, Malay Muslims. So uh, this is a recipe for ethnic strife. Uh, but interestingly, there's hardly any ethnic strife. And you'll, you'll hear a few anecdotal stories, but actually it's a country that gets along very well together. How did that happen? Well, he was under Lee Kuan Yew and his, his government were under a good bit of pressure to make Chinese the lingua franca, but, but that would favor one of the ethnic groups. And instead of doing that, he made English the lingua franca, which not only favors the fourth, it doesn't give anybody an advantage, but also was an advantage uh, for the finance industry. He made it easy for people to buy their own homes. People who own their own homes take much better care of them. The neighborhood is nicer. Not only that, every one of the high-rises, most people live in these government high-rises, 85% or so live in these government high-rises. Every high-rise reflects the ethnic diversity of the country. So everybody, whether you're Malay, Indian, or uh, Chinese, you live together, you eat together, you work together, your kids go to school together. There's no Indian ghetto or uh, Malay slum, and everybody lives together. Uh, Lee Kuan Yew was very big on uh, security, famously Keynes violent people and Haynes drug dealers. Uh, but on the other hand, people have the security that their kids can play in the street, 
where anybody can, a woman can walk across all of Singapore any time of day or night and not worry about being accosted. So a little bit less on the freedom scale, more on the security scale. Uh, he set up the taxation system so that if you work, uh, you can work hard. If you want to buy luxuries, you're going to pay a tax for luxuries. Uh, but if you do any job, whether you're sweeping the streets or you're cleaning the lavatories or just selling bananas at the market, everybody's pay is topped up. Everybody has enough money to buy food, shelter, health care, and education for their kids. They're, the ante for happiness is covered in this country. Singapore is a place that does a great job of illustrating this notion of life satisfaction. It's a place where um, if you favor security, uh, if your values are conservative, if you're willing to work hard just so long as you know that there's a payoff, this is a place where people really thrive. On the other side of the planet, uh, we found a place with a completely different kind of happiness, but every much as every, much is every bit as important. Uh, in the highlands of Costa Rica, the Central Valley, uh, this is the area with, where people have the highest positive affect. In other words, they enjoy life day to day. Uh, this is the country whose first presidents were teachers. And unlike the rest of Central America, where the first presidents were often dictators, here the early presidents uh, went to Europe and were educa educated by the Social Democrats. Uh, they invested heavily in education. Uh, Costa Rica has the highest literacy rate in all of Central America. It has so uh, for the past 60 or 70 years. About 98% of people can read. They invest heavily in public health. As early as the 1920s, there was fresh water throughout Central America. Every man, woman, and child in the country has the right to one free visit a year from a health ambassador. This health ambassador will come into your home if you're lonely, uh, spend some time talking to you, get your health record, take your blood pressure, uh, check you for diabetes, screen you for uh, depression, and catch a disease before it's a 911 uh, uh, problem. She'll go in the backyard, or he will go in the backyard to look for standing water. That's why there was never a big Zika outbreak in uh, Costa Rica. They don't have big problems with dengue and malaria. And even go in the refrigerator and coach people the right way to eat. Now, we tend to think of health and happiness as two separate things, but actually they're inextric inextricably linked. You really can't be happy if you're not healthy. And in Costa Rica, they spend 1 15th the amount America does on health care and they have half the rate of middle-aged mortality. In fact, the longest-lived people in the world live in Costa Rica, and those longest-lived people are among the poorest. Poorest actually live longer there. Completely pops the myth that you need money to be healthy. Um, their notion of igualdad assures that whether you're able-bodied or disabled, straight or gay, uh, old or young, people are all afforded the same services, and it's a place where this X factor of Latin American happiness, if you control for everything else, uh, Latin Americans are happier than any place else. Costa Rica has the best manifestation of that Latin American X factor, uh, a factor that's favored by a population that puts huge emphasis on family, religion. No matter where you go in the world, religious people report higher levels of happiness than non-religious people, and they'll favor social interactions. The happiest people in the world 
socially interact face-to-face, -face, not Facebook, not FaceTime, six hours a day. So what we're doing at this conference. This kind of happiness, you know, this positive affect, uh, is the type of happiness that uh, draws people who really like to seize the day and savor life over uh, sacrificing too much today to save for tomorrow. And then I think one of the best examples of happiness in the world is here in, in Denmark. Denmark has most consistently topped the happiness scales for about 50 years. Um, several organizations measure happen. The best is Gallup. About 100 years ago, they suffered a crushing defeat. They turned inward. And this was the first country in the world to educate children of peasants. They were usually just thought of workers until uh, about the 20th century. Here in 1850, uh, these folk schools taught the children of farmers uh, art appreciation and consensus and civics. And most notably, they taught girls. This is the first place in the world where girls were given an education. First place in the world to start cooperatives, which led to unions, which led to universal health care and education. Uh, in, in Denmark today, everybody has free education through college. In fact, you, you get paid to go to college. Free health care, and everybody who retires is assured a comfortable retirement. It also has the highest trust in the world. Uh, one of the biggest correlates to national happiness is trust. Do you trust each other? Do you trust the government? Do you trust the cops? And here, the best example of trust that I saw happen mid-morning in the cafes in Aarhus, where women would get together with their friends to chat, but because their toddlers were noisy, they just left them out in the, in the lobby. And for those crying little babies, well, they just parked them outside, which is completely natural in Denmark. But when a Danish woman tried to do this in New York City, she ended up in jail. Traditionally, it's been a very tolerant place. Uh, in America, we like to brag because just in the last 20 years or so, we started letting gays marry. Uh, but in Denmark, gays have been marrying for the past 50 years. And no matter what your values, there's a way to express them, whether you like to read the newspaper naked or ride your bike naked. Don't try this at home. <laughs> and it's set up really so people can get the right kind of job. Uh, Denmark famously has the highest tax rates in the world. But on the other hand, all their needs are taken care of. So when people are deciding what they're going to do for a living, it makes no sense to favor a paycheck over a job that fuels your passion because you're going to get taxed to the mean anyway. So here's a place where the garbage man makes as much as the lawyer. So it favors uh, work, uh, professions like design, furniture making, and architecture. Some of the best uh, architects in the world are here in Denmark. And it reminds us that while we tend to think of happiness as the pursuit of joy, actually mitigating those things that cause us day-to-day -day stress is just as important. Uh, in Denmark, as I've said, they don't have to worry about whether or not they'll be cared for if they get sick, whether or not their kids will go to school, or whether or not they'll have a future after they retire. So three different parts of the world, three different kinds of happiness. There's one set of factors that explain each of the three places, a little stronger set that explains two. And then the sweet spot here, uh, these six factors explain about 90% of human happiness. 
Um, the first one, GDP, gross domestic product. Thing to remember about GDP though, it is a blunt instrument. GDP is important for poor countries, but after you hit GDP of about $25,000 a year, or the GDP of Portugal, say, more GDP doesn't really bring much more happiness. There's diminishing marginal return. So after your country has made enough, if leaders are really interested in producing well-being and happiness, they would focus their resources on other things. I'd argue that the second most important thing to focus on is healthy life expectancy. Costa Rica produces the highest healthy life expectancy per capita than any place else in the world. Generosity, which is the propensity of people to donate. Tolerance, which is the freedom to live out your values. That doesn't necessarily mean the freedom to demonstrate or cause trouble or to do drugs, but freedom to live out your values. You live in a place where social interaction is easy. There's a very big correlation, by the way, between bikeability and the happiness of the place. Most bikeable place in the world is Copenhagen, Denmark. About 50% of all trips are done on bicycling, uh, on bicycles. And then the biggest, uh, and, and then uh, second biggest correlate is trust. Uh, do you trust your government? Do you trust your cops? And do you trust each other? And there are policies that will favor trust over, um, the, will favor trust. So three types of happiness, but how do you apply them to your life? So I hired a couple researchers to do um, an academic review of all the available research. So we can measure three types of happiness. Life satisfaction, how you evaluate your life, positive effect, how you experience your life, and purpose, which is more or less meaning. And there's one set of things you can do to favor each. If you're interested in life satisfaction, you work full time, you make at least $75,000 a year. If you favor day-to-day -day joy, you make sure you get your seven hours of sleep. You vacation six weeks, which is the optimal. If purpose is important for you, you do the internal inventory and make sure you get the job you like. There's a few factors that fall in both categories. Uh, having faith seems to be good for both purpose and life satisfaction. Volunteering is good for both experience life and, and purpose. And having sex twice a week is good for not only how you experience your life, but how you evaluate it. And that may be a, a pearl of wisdom you, you guys might want to take home to your wives. And then there's the uh, sweet spot for individuals. Five or so things we know favor all three types of happiness. Um, so these are the things that will statistically make you happier. And the literature of positive psychology is full of different tricks and techniques to make you happy. But the problem with pursuing positive psychology is two things, twofold. Number one, the intervention only works as long as you're paying attention. So as soon as you quit uh, practicing gratitude and savoring, the effect goes away. And number two, other research shows that the harder we try to be happy, the more miserable we are. So if you really want to be happy, here's what I think you ought to do. And this is all driven by statistics. You want to shape your environment so you're more likely to be happy. So most of us live about eight kilometers from our home and work. I call this the life radius. And there's a number of things you can do to permanently shape that environment. So I have six different domains here. The first one is the individual. Not much you can do to your inner self, but there is one thing that seems to work. 
people who go through an intense meditation experience like vipassana seem to rewire their their brains for several years to be able to stay in the present more favors happiness when it comes to finances believe it or not financial security is more important than consumption so if you have a little bit extra money you're much better off putting that extra money in an insurance policy or paying down your mortgage or opting in for some automatic for savings plan than you are buying a new pair of shoes or getting a new electronic gadget when it comes to your home though your re realtor will tell you to buy the cheapest home on the block you're actually much better off to buy an average home on the block because you don't want to walk out your front door every morning and see a nicer car than yours and a bigger house than yours because it slowly grates away at our psyche a few other things you can do in your house is make sure you have natural light, make sure you have a window that looks out of nature, and have the type of house that invites people in. Social networks, there's a lot you can do with your social network. Uh, the minimum we should all have are three friends that we can count on on a shitty day. We can have meaningful conversations with them and we actually like them. And for every new happy person we add to our network, it increases our own chances of happiness by about 15%. When it comes to work, I pointed out the importance, especially for everybody in this room, the importance of pursuing your passion over a paycheck is a much better strategy in the long run. But Gallup asked two million employees over the course of five years what the most important determinant of whether or not they were happy. And guess what it was? What are the expectations? That's close. The biggest determinant of whether or not you like your job is do you have a best friend at work? So whatever you can do as an individual to find that best friend or as an employer to help foment uh, friendships at work, uh, you should see job satisfaction going up. And finally, the most important thing, and this I think will shock you, if happiness is a key recipe, so you have to have the right job, uh, you want to marry the right person, you want to be healthy, you want to um, uh, feel like you're giving back, etc., etc. The most important variable in that cake recipe, the most important ingredient is where you live. So two experiments worldwide have been done. One from Moldova, uh, immigrants from Moldavia moving to Copenhagen. Moldavia tends to be one of the least happy places in Europe. But when they move to Copenhagen, their happiness about doubles from four to about eight. And a bigger study has just been completed by a friend of mine named John Halliwell in Canada. He followed 500,000 immigrants from less happy places like Africa and Asia, followed them as they came to Canada. And within one year, those less happy people, regardless of their age, their gender, their level of education, were reporting the happiness level of their adopted home. So if you're unhappy now, about the most important, the most powerful thing you can do is move to a happier place. And the data now exists, uh, not only nationwide, but within nations, to tell you where that happy place is. So science cannot assure anybody in this room happiness, but it can tell you how to stack the proverbial deck in favor of happiness. With that, I want to just close with the best advice I got in a year and a half of traveling. I, I uh, met the, the happiest guy in Latin America. His name is Aguirre Fuentes. They call him El Caton. 
He writes four articles a day. He's 85, year old, five, 85 years old. Uh, he said the secret to happiness is to eat without gluttony, drink without getting drunk, love without jealousy, never argue, and occasionally, with great discretion, misbehave. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I have an impossible task before me right now. I mean, certainly following Dr. Pez, whose work was seminal and really uh, illustrates all that we're doing here. But then to introduce the next speaker, who not only is a friend, but really is one of my heroes. Because when you think about the work that he's done to start from the journey where Dr. Pez started, and what he's done to democratize this concept of wellness, and to make it so that every person in our world has some access to it and understand it. And you think about this, that 500 years ago, Ponce de Leon came to this country and he was looking for the fountain of youth. And what our next speaker told us was the fountain of youth is within all of us if we choose the right lifestyles. And he's an accomplished, world-class cyclist. He's a publisher, he's a producer, he's an author. And he had time to study many more communities and bring us this information that expanded the ideas of Blue Zones but really democratized it so that we understand. And so we owe Dr. Pez a great deal of admiration for his insightfulness and for Dan Buechner, we owe him a great deal because he's really transformed this and really brought it to every home so that they understand the importance of wellness. So please join me in welcoming Dan Buechner to the stage. I, I feel like I blundered into a very big and welcoming family reunion. So. Thank you for the hug, metaphorically speaking. So I'm going to talk about the world's longest lived people and the lessons they offer us. And many of them, by the way, are very counterintuitive. But, but uh, I'm a big believer, like Dr. Guerra, that wonderful speech about the WHO, that if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. So I am going to start, actually, by measuring each and every one of yours life expectancy. And your job. Uh, I'm going to ask you eight questions. Your job is to raise your hand uh, for the questions that apply to you, and then the hard part, remember how many times you raise your hand. So they start easy and make it hard. Raise your hand if you sleep at least seven hours a night, most nights. Last night doesn't count. Seven hours. Oh, it's really well rested much. Move, uh, raise your hand if you move at least 30 minutes a day. It doesn't all have to be on techno gym, but it can be walking, it can be gardening. All right, most of you, ambassadors to the industry, raise your hand if you eat three honest servings of vegetables every day. Vegetables and french fries and ketchup do not count. All right, I would say two-thirds of you. Raise your hand if you have not, and I underscore not had unprotected sex with a stranger. I said, <laughs> I would have party with you guys tonight. <laughs> Rich, your hand should be up. All right, the other end of the spectrum. Raise your hand if you belong to a faith. It could be Christian, Muslim, Jew, it doesn't matter. Belong to keep them up. And keep them up if you show up at least four times a month. 
Alright, there's two hands. Okay, this is, a, this is a dumb question for this crowd, but I'm going to ask you anyway. Raise your hand if you have at least three friends who, number one, you can have a meaningful conversation with them. Number two, you can call them on a bad day and they'll care. And number three, you actually like them. Like I said, I knew it was a dumb question this crowd. Uh, raise your hand if you have not smoked in the last five years. I mean tobacco. Okay. <laughs> A few extra hands there. And raise your hand if you have the desire and you believe you have the physical capacity to lift at least age 90. Desire and physical capacity. Okay, that's actually the best predictor, better, best single most predictor. But when you add all four of them up, assuming an age of 50, and looking around me, I can tell you guys are a lot younger. Uh, but assuming age 50, if you raise your hand at least twice and you're a man, Life expectancy 75, and if you're a woman, it's 79. If you raise your hand at least five times, and you're a man, life expectancy is 82, and a woman's 86. And if you raise your hand at least seven times, and you're a man, life expectancy is 89, and for a woman, it's 93. <laughs> so, did, did anybody here raise your hand all eight times? Anybody raise? Could you guys stand up, please? Could you, could you please stand up? Could, look, it's all over on this side. Can we give them a huge world of health, wellness, round of applause? You guys are now dismissed to the bar. We have special martinis for you. The rest of you can stay. So in 2003, uh, uh, working with National Geographic, we set out to, in a sense, reverse engineer longevity. Uh, something called the Danish Twin Study, which uh, Dr. Pass uh, cited, established that less than about 20% of how long you live is dictated by your genes. The other 80% uh, or so is lifestyle and environment. So based on that assumption, uh, we went about finding all the demographically confirmed areas where people are living measurably longest. This little exercise took me about two and a half years. And then once we found these places, and by the way, Michelle and Gianni have been my partners from the very beginning, really founders of this concept along with me. Um, once we were able to identify these areas, then we brought on a different team of experts to help us find the common denominators, the correlates. And remarkably, no matter where you go in the world and you find extraordinary longevity, you see the same nine factors happening over and over again, and I'm going to tell you what those nine factors are. But first, since I have the benefit of National Geographic photography, I thought I'd quickly take you to each of these nine blue zones areas and give you a feel for what it's like uh, to be there. So of course, the first place we stopped was Sardinia, not far from here, about 200 miles or 200 kilometers off the coast of Italy. Not the entire island, but just the, this area where Gianni points out. This is actually an area where a Bronze Age culture lived, and they were pushed up there uh, by the Romans about 2,000 years ago, so not like the coast of Esmeralda. And Gianni was really the first to identify extraordinary longevity, a great inspiration, a great friend. I would argue one of the best longevity experts in the world, and I'm not just saying that because he's my friend, but because uh, he's made an original finding and he's better prepared, has a better sort of all-encompassing understanding of centenarians than anyone I've met in the last 20 years studying longevity. So, so <laughs> that's not Gianni. So, 
So as Gianni pointed out, this is the area where you have the highest concentration of male centenarians in the world. So guys, this is where you might want to retire. Uh, women, on the other hand, might want to go to the other side of the planet, about uh, uh, 1,200 kilometers south of Tokyo, on the archipelago of Okinawa, you find the world's longest lived women. So among cohorts of women over 60, you see about 30 times more centenarians than you would expect to see among a similar United States population. So this is extraordinary longevity. The, the islands, in fact, have the longest disability-free life expectancy in the world. What does that mean? They live the longest and they avoid chronic diseases that are foreshortening our lives and costing our world trillions of dollars. They live a long time, they stay sharp until the very end. Why do they do it? Well, certainly part of it is their diet. About 60% of their dietary intake until about 1960 came from one food alone. Anyone want to guess what that food was? Fish, seaweed I heard? Rice, I'm gonna shock you all. It's actually purple sweet potatoes called Evo. And the reason they ate them because they were it was a typhoon-proof plant. So these typhoons could go through, wipe out everything else, and the, the uh, sweet potatoes remain. Turns out they're extraordinarily healthy food. Uh, add to that the tofu, they have one of the highest consumption rates of tofu in the world, about eight times more than we have in the West. Liberal use of turmeric, uh, I, I'm not a big believer in supplements, but uh, turmeric and teas and food probably has an anti-inflammatory, anti-cancer uh, effect. It's not been proven among these people, but there's a nice correlation. But more important than I believe than their diet are some of the cultural aspects. So I asked you that question if you have three good friends you can count on on a bad day. That's a real question. It's a question the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation uses to determine loneliness. If you're lonely, uh, in America anyway, it's probably most of the developed world, uh, you don't have three good friends you can count on, it shaves about eight years off of your life expectancy. Loneliness is as bad for you as smoking 15 cigarettes a day, and it's grossly underappreciated in the longevity culture. Uh, where I come from in the United States, we're not automatically born with those three friends. We have to work to get them. In Okinawa, uh, you're sort of born with something called a moai, a committed social network of friends who support them, each other throughout their entire life. And the reason I'm showing this picture here is that these five girls have belonged to the same moai for the past 97 years. Their average age is 102. They get together every night, gossip, drink sake, argue about who that hot guy liked best back in 1941. But they really have each other's back. It's really, I would say, a, a, a smaller version of this, uh, of this conference, but they get together every night. If one doesn't show up to the nightly, uh, nightly tea and, and sake, the other ones are checking in on them. Also, the Okinawan dialect have no word for retirement. Instead, there's none of this artificial punctuation between your useful life and your uh, life of repose. Uh, in Okinawa, the word is ikigai, the reason for which I wake up in the, in the morning and imbues their entire adult life. Uh, I have this great uh, conversation with my new best friend, um, Sue uh, Harmsworth. I got it right? <laughs> 
So she told me she bought sold three companies, and she said if she wants to get busy, she announces her retirement. So the, the, the prime example, I think, of, of Ikigai. But here, it's found in uh, passing down to martial arts. It's continuing to stay active in your profession. Or in the case of Kamana-san, a 103-year-old spiritual leader, it's found in her great, great, great granddaughter. These two girls are separated in an age by 101 and a half years. So my editor at National Geographic, a very clever um, editor, been there for, around forever, Peter Miller, he said, you have to find the blue zone in the United States. And uh, we had to look hard, but we came across some very interesting data at the National Institutes on Aging that pointed to a very unusual subculture at the, off the San Bernardino Freeway near Los Angeles, a place called Loma Linda, California. I remember after being in exotic Sardinia, I'm all of a sudden getting off an exit ramp uh, to America's Blue Zone. The first thing I saw was a Del Taco and a Wiener Hut. I'm like, what's going on here? Well, it turns out Loma Linda, California is home to the highest concentration of Seventh-day Adventists. Adventists are conservative Methodists who distinguish themselves from other Christians in that they celebrate their Sabbath on Saturday and they evangelize with health. But really, there's something pretty extraordinary going on here. Life expectancy for American women is 80, but for Adventist women, it's 89. And for men, the difference is even more remarkable. So think about it for a second. Here is a population of Americans living next to the Wiener Hut and living a decade longer. And what that really means is they're avoiding the diseases that foreshorten their lives. Is it something genetic? No. If you look at a Adventist population, they're from European extraction, they're Hispanics, they're Asian, there's African Americans. Uh, it's, it's a heterogeneous population. So what's happening here? Why well, I vetted, I took about 15 trips there over the last 15 years, and you see very clearly from Friday night at sunset until Saturday night at sunset, no matter how busy they are, no matter what the job is screaming at them to do, no matter where the kids need to be driven, no matter what the social schedule is dictating, they stop everything. Friday night, they focus on their families. Uh, Saturday morning, they do their, their church. Saturday afternoon, it's plant-based potlucks. And Saturday afternoon, hardwired right in their religion, uh, is a nature walk, uh, the definite, definition of which has uh, evolved over the decades. But nevertheless, not, not just during the sort of wellness program at work, they're doing it every year, every decade of their life. Adventists tend to hang out with other Adventists. They take their diet directly from the Bible. I'm not a big Bible reader, but I read it for this story. And you see very clearly in Genesis, Chapter 1, verse 27 through 29, God prescribes very clearly the diet for the Garden of Eden. Every plant that bears seeds, so that's nuts and grains and beans and pulses, and then every tree that bears fruit. And one stanza later, God talks about green plants. So the Adventists actually follow that. The healthiest Americans are actually vegan Adventists or Adventists who are out of maybe a little bit of fish, but they actually um, follow this Genesis diet. Uh, we now know that health behaviors are as contagious as catching a cold. Adventists tend to hang out with other Adventists. 
uh, produced uh, men like Ellsworth Wareham, a multi-millionaire. Yet when a contractor wanted $6,000 to build a privacy fence, at age 94, he says, well, I'll build it myself for that kind of money. For the next four days, our photographer followed around in the blistering heat as he shoveled cement and hauled timbers. And on the fourth day, predictably enough, he ends up in the operating room. But that's not Ellsworth Wareham getting open heart surgery. That's Ellsworth Wareham doing open heart surgery. The guy on the left. I somehow see Rich Carmona doing something like this. Or this, a 106-year-old cowboy who starts his day with a swim and on the weekends he puts on the boards. Or my favorite, Marge Deton, 105, wakes up every morning, reads her Bible for a half hour, eats her breakfast, and she's very prescriptive about her breakfast. Slow-cooked oatmeal, nuts, soy milk, raisins, and then followed by what she calls a prune juice shooter. Imagine that, moving right on up. And then she pumps iron, uh, gets on her bike, uh, rides down the San Bernardino Freeway, 105, where she helps out with the Loma Linda Senior Center. <laughs> you guys don't know this about me, but I've actually uh, led 17 fairly hardcore expeditions for National Geographic including crossing uh, Siberian bogs, across the Sahara without sunscreen, but I can honestly tell you, the most harrowing adventure I've ever had was riding shotgun with Marge Deton. Strangers, a friend I had met. So I wrote up these three uh, cultures for National Geographic. It was one of the best-selling issues in the uh, history of the magazine. And, um, like a good explorer, I never had any money before doing this. I uh, all of a sudden made some money. I wrote the first Blue Zones book, uh, which, by the way, is not a really a geographic term as much as it is a lifestyle. It embodies the common denominators of, uh, it sometimes uses geography, but we try to make it a, a bigger, more embracing idea. Uh, I hired the demographers to go out and find other Blue Zones. We found a fourth Blue Zone in the Nicoya Peninsula of Costa Rica not along the beach, sadly, but inland. Here people have the lowest rate of middle-aged mortality in the world. Uh, they have a very, um, uh, I would argue, the best diet humans have ever invented because it's so simple and delicious, made of three simple ingredients, corn, which is ground into these beautiful tortillas, a variety of beans, which are made delicious, and then a type of squash. And when you combine these three foods, you have uh, complex carbohydrates, trace minerals, and all the amino acids necessary for human sustenance. They spend 1 15th the amount we do on healthcare, and they, they get more people to a healthy age 90 than any place else in the world. A great example for policymakers to pay attention to. And finally, our last blue zone on the island of Ikaria, Greece, uh, not far from Turkey. Actually, a week from today, I'm going to be at a very uh, interesting uh, aspiring blue zone uh, called Kamalaya, um, just a few miles from here. Um, but uh, this one was a very uh, isolated place, uh, largely overlooked by Western civilization. It produces a population with 
uh, eight extra years of life expectancy, half the rate of cardiovascular disease, and most interesting, about one-fifth the rate of dementia, as you'd expect to see among a similar population. Part of the reason, I argue, the, the uh, most strict version of the Mediterranean diet in the world, uh, several herbs that lower inflammation and serve as uh, diuretics, and like every blue zone, people grow their own food. I like to tell the story of this guy here, the short little guy to the right, his name is Stamitis Moriaitis. He moved to America, hard worker, uh, got a job as a painter, married a Greek American, bought a house in the suburbs, uh, bought a Chevrolet. But at age 66, he started getting sick. He uh, uh, went to a doctor, three doctors all gave him the same diagnosis, uh, terminal lung cancer, He'll be dead in six months. So instead of dying in the U.S., he moves back to Ikaria, moves in with his parents, starts breathing the air, drinking the wine, eating the uh, diet, reconnecting with his friends, reconnects with his religion. After six months, he's actually feeling pretty good, and he plants an orchard of grape, uh, grapevines. And he says to himself, I'm never going to be alive to see these, but my wife will. And when she picks these grapes, she'll think of me and remember me. Well, to make a long story medium, 34 years later when I met him, he was producing 200 liters of wine from that little vineyard, all of which he drank. So being a good journalist, of course, I asked the Mighties, what is your secret to longevity? And I was pretty sure it was not his ability to match planets. And he said, I don't know, I guess I just forgot to die. Which sounds flippant, but here comes the counterintuitive part. He actually hit the nail on the head. No matter where you go in the world and you see long-lived people, whether it's in Sardinia or Ikaria or uh, Okinawa, it's not because they tried. They never said at age 50, well, go darn it, I'm going to get on that longevity diet live another 50 years. They didn't join the wellness program at work. They didn't call up an 800 number and start ordering supplements. The big epiphany here was that longevity is not something that is successfully pursued. It ensues. It is the product of a right, the right environment, the environment that makes the healthy choice the easy choice. So no matter where you go in the world and you see long-lived people, uh, number one, uh, they're not exercising. Sadly, they don't have techno gyms. And by the way, I think techno gyms are the best uh, gyms in the world. I use them all the time. But fewer than 20% of Americans get enough exercise. In blue zones, every time people go to work, to a friend's house, when their kids go to school, it occasions a walk. They have gardens. Their houses are not full of mechanical conveniences. They are nudged in a movement every 20 minutes. So they keep their metabolism high. They burn more calories. Uh, they suffer the same stresses that we do, but they have sacred daily rituals to re reverse that stress and inflammation through prayer or naps or happy hour. They have vocabulary for purpose, which adds about eight extra years of life expectancy. They. Uh, they do drink a little bit. I, I wrote another book called The Blue Zone Solution, which you can see out in the lobby there, but we spent three years to do a meta-analysis of what people in blue zones really eat. And if you 
average up 155 guys carry surveys in all blue zones, you see the same thing. 90 to 100% plant-based, uh, uh, very high carbohydrate diets, complex carbohydrates, grains, greens, tubers, nuts, and beans are the five pillars of every blue zone diet in the world. If you're eating a cup of beans a day, it's probably adding about four years to your life expectancy. They do eat meat, uh, but fewer than five times a month. Less fish than you might think. No cow's dairy. And when they come to drinking, it's water, tea, coffee, and a little bit of wine. Very Italian in that. Uh, not, they don't focus on what they eat, but different strategies to keep from overeating. They eat a uh, large breakfast, medium-sized lunch. Uh, they eat with their family, there's no uh, um, electronics in their kitchen. And then the foundation of every blue zone in the world is they keep their family nearby, keep their aging parents, invest in their kids and their spouses. They tend to be religious and probably the biggest thing and the biggest takeaway uh, is they surround themselves with the right kind of people. We now know that if your three best friends are obese and unhealthy, there's a 150% better chance that you'll be overweight. So when your grandmother maybe used to tell you that show me your friends and I'll tell you your future, no place is more apparent than blue zones around the world. Uh, we spent a lot of money in this country uh, trying to prevent disease, uh, uh, diets, supplements, exercise programs, but the problem with all of them is they occasionally work in the short run, uh, but they almost always fail in the long, in the long run. Uh, diets, uh, exercise programs, we tend to start them with a lot of uh, uh, enthusiasm after the holidays and usually run out of gas by, by uh, uh, September. And even if we found a pill in the blue zone guaranteed to reverse longevity, Americans won't take it long enough to make a difference. <laughs> and I hate to tell you this, but when it comes to longevity, there's no pill, there's no supplement, there's no magical serum you can raise a, a rub on your face that's going to reverse, stop, or slow aging. The best shot is doing what people in the blue zones do. It's shifting the focus from trying to ch uh, change people's behaviors and changing their environment. People in blue zones, they eat wisely and they move naturally, but because they're underpinned by purpose, they hang out with the right people and they live in a community where the unhealthy choice is impossible. So over the past um, uh, uh, 10 years, I've been taking this model and applying it to 26 cities. Today at four o'clock, I'm gonna show you how you can actually apply this model and make it work measurably for populations. And with that, I'm gonna say thank you very much. And as the Sardinians say, Akano set, I'll see you at 100. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>